Welcome to Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore the creativity happening in the LCC galaxy, in our classrooms and on campus, and connecting the work of our stars with our community. We are doing a part two uh, of a two-part conversation with four different guests, three here in the studio and one on the phone, uh, talking about LCC's Human Services Program and its connection with the community through community agencies and students who get hands-on real-life experience during a two-semester practicum with these agencies. So I want to welcome our guests. First on the phone, we have Janet Marion, who is the director of LCC's Human Services Program. Her work includes placing practicum students in the agencies um, and She's been with LCC for just under 20 years. Thanks for being here, Janet. Thank you, Melissa. And we have human services student uh, who has completed a practicum, Sawinde Constance-Yay, and she has pursued several associate's degrees and is now working on her bachelor's degree. Thanks for being here, Sawinde. Thank you for having me. And from the agency, from Allen Neighborhood Center, uh, which I always think of as just a real jewel in the community service crown, uh, in the community of Lansing, not only community service. It's it's pretty amazing. Uh, we have two guests. We have Denise Paquette, who's the Director of Outreach and Engagement. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Thanks, Melissa. And Joan Nelson, who is the Retiring Executive Director of Allen Neighborhood Center uh, for 23 years. Thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here uh, on the eve of of your <laughs> retirement from ANC. So thank you. Thank End you so much. Yes. End of the month. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, we talked a little bit in the first episode about some of the nuts and bolts of the Human Services Program, um, about some of your experiences, Sawinde, what Allen Neighborhood Center uh, uh offers and exists to do, and specifically uh, the, the Senior Discovery Program where Sawinde uh, served. Uh, I want to jump back to LCC's program a little bit, um, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk more about your experience, Sawinde, and, and Allen Neighborhood Center. Uh, Janet, what are some of the other agencies and practicum experiences that, that our students have had around the community and that, that you're seeking for future human services students? Okay, so the program has been in existence since I, way before I was here. I've been here for um, 21 years. Um, and over the time that I have been here, we have placed at 120 agencies around the community. But to kind of give you a synopsis of like the last um, five to seven years, we've placed at 40 agencies. Um, we've wow. placed with 40. Um, um, 40, more than 40. I just have 40 listed, and I won't cover all of them, but Adult Respice, Allen Neighborhood, American Red Cross, uh, Campus Us, uh, Hospice and Palliative Care, Capital Area Community Services, and they have different um, agencies. They have the same agency in different cities. We've placed with the Capital Area Literacy Coalition. We've placed with a um, uh, a number of agencies working with the homeless, um, community mental health, uh, Department of Health and Human Services. 
We've placed there with Child Protective Services, Adult Protective Services, Foster Care and Human Trafficking, um, Disability Network, Capital Area, uh, Dyslexic Institute of Michigan, Ellie's Place, Eaton Behavioral Health, Greater Lansing Food Bank, um, Loaves and Fishes, uh, Michigan Alcohol Policy, Mid-Michigan Guardianship Services, Reach Studio Art, Sparrow Behavioral Health, Tri-County Office on Aging. Um, and those are just, I mean, those are just a few that I can name off. I'm not going to take the, whole, the time. Janet, we that play is with- absolutely incredible. That is uh, uh- I kind of my mind is blown and you said yeah you haven't mentioned all of them for and it 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 really it it touches me deeply to think I mean because LCC community college and and what a what a incredible way to have our students serve the community and have our our college serve the community um do you have a practicum student to help do all that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, this kind of sums it up um, without naming all of the agencies. Um, I took the last 10 academic years and looked at the number of practicum students that we have had over those 10 years and their placements. And over a 10-year period, the practicum students have contributed to the community by putting 50,400 hours in. And then we can take a dollar amount from that. There's a an agency that uh, puts a value of time on volunteers, um, and they do a calculation, and it's base it's nationwide, and they base it on on the state. So if you take those fifty thousand four hundred hours and you time it by each year, that amount is different. It, over the last 10 years, the agencies have had, um, you know, practicum students that are worth $1,222,227.20. Now, those agencies can take that dollar amount and those hours and write it into their grants if they need to. But I think when we look at it that way and the dollar amount, the hours that the students have contributed to the community is just so worthwhile. And not only for the agencies and the people that have been served by those students, but for the students themselves, especially when you were talking last week about, you know, what does this mean for a student and how does it advance them? And then the dollar amount is just, I mean, what a contribution to the community. And Allen Neighborhood has been a part of that. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so striking to me that, I mean, and I, th- I think about this, I think about it with Allen Neighborhood and the other agencies as well, how, how what most of the public may be aware of is, is very much on the surface, right. uh, which isn't, isn't bad. I mean, not everybody can know everything, but you think about it. I used the flower analogy before uh, about how we as humans responded when we could reconnect face-to-face with people after the isolation of the peak of the pandemic. And I think of that 
analogy as well this way. It's like we see we see the plants on the surface, the flowers on the surface. We have no idea how deep those roots are of the community, of the college contribution, or of your volunteers, for example. You're telling us about 500 volunteers at Allen Neighborhood Center. I think that's just remarkable, and it is um, something that for us to to you know just really sing about to in our community. Right. Um, and Joan, I know that's something that you've done as a community leader. We we sing about that all the time, and it's you know we know that the impact that uh, that the neighbor any impact that the neighborhood center has had on the east side uh, is due at least in part to the generosity of people like Constance and the, you know, literally hundreds of other interns and practicum students who've worked with us over the last couple of decades. They've made, you know, a, a huge difference. They make a, a, a huge difference in how much we can do and how many people we can work with and how many different ways we might, you know, impact uh, life in the neighborhood and, but it also has given us an opportunity to really uh, contribute to the ongoing education of, of interns and, and folks interested in human service and uh, neighborhood revitalization and community development. There was a moment about, about a decade ago when uh, a group of, of uh, program managers and I were sitting around and we were you know, complaining about the fact that with the start of each year, of each academic year, we have to put so much time into uh, kind of front-loading all the training of interns and, uh, and, and practicum students and AmeriCorps and whatnot. And, you know, we had a, you know, kind of a crystal clear moment where we realized that we needed to stop complaining about that and really embrace it, really celebrate the fact that we could have uh, that we could have a uh, that we could play a role, an important role in introducing young people and not so young people actually to this kind of work, and, you know, to work in the neighborhood sector, you know, to human service and development work in that sector. And uh, it changes. I mean, we, we, when we decided to, to embrace it and not complain about it, it really changed things, I think, for all of us. And, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a really uh, important role to play, and we're glad to, to be able to do that. That pivot in perspective is, yes, is crucial. Right. And because otherwise you are, it is just a burden, but, and, and a lot of, times having, you know, back in the day, been an intern multiple places, right, right, right. The, the best, you know, you get out of it what you put into it, but the best experiences where the agency or the employer also provided guidance and saw the value of teaching and yes, not all, yes. all places look at it. They, they think of, Oh, we're going to have an intern or a practicum student and they're going right. to just do a bunch of stuff for us. Exactly. And there are rich relationships that come out of this, you know, actually with interns and AmeriCorps who stay in touch with us. I hope you do Constance for many, many years. And, but we still get, uh, notices over the holidays from people who interned with us 15 years ago, you oh. know, or, or um, just got a note the other day from 
uh, somebody who was a, a housing AmeriCorps with us, you know, a dozen years ago, who is now, you know, a chief planner in a major U.S. city, you know, so it's really, it's exciting, you know, to to know that that person valued that experience that we, you know, that we were able to provide something uh, that helped, you know, send him on this life path. And uh, so it's, it's, it has great rewards for us, not just for students and for, you know, for practicum students and interns. We, we benefit enormously from the relationships that we're uh, able to develop with people that we work with. Absolutely. Denise, I'm curious. You've, you've worked, I think, is it over 30 years with community service, with refugee populations, with seniors? And I'm, I'm wondering, well, I'm, I'm just curious if, if that was your, the path that you initially saw yourself going on. I'm wondering if for you there was a pivotal educational experience that, that kind of sent you in this direction. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I worked for a large utility company, not the one based here in Lansing. And I, uh, I had been trained as an artist and as a drafter. Hmm. And so I did that. And after seven, eight years, I thought, this is just not for me. Corporate life is not for me. At the same time, I was volunteering at the Listening Ear Crisis Center. And that became something that I became very passionate about. Uh, I didn't get to. I didn't get super involved, like on the administrative level, but the helping people part really became important to me. So that's when I made that pivot. It was like that learning about empathy and about helping people and offering resources. Uh, that was my moment. It just crystallized for me right then. That's exciting. That's and you're able to pin it right down to to see that. Uh, it, it, I, I see, I feel this connection between you, Denise, and, and Sawinde that, that's just apparent here uh, across the table. Um, and, and I know that you said, uh, and I, I can see it from, from what you've just shared, that what drew you to this work is, what, is partially what draws you to it as well, this, this personal uh, compassion. And uh, Denise, you shared in, in some uh, before... The, the podcast that uh, someone day has made you a better person, and I wondered if you could talk about why that is and in what way. Sure. Well, I first have to say all my interns give me something. I hope I'm giving them something also. Uh, but they're there to learn, but I also end up learning from them, which is really interesting uh, because I'm often learning from people who could be my grandchildren at this point. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that, you know, is a little bit of a funny circumstance. I think for many people my age, that would be a weird thing. But to me, it's something I cherish. You've got me thinking about that, that too. Um, the, the, how age, how there's so many ways to bridge age and, and, you know, what's at the, in the heart of someone that often is, is the best bridge. And it doesn't matter if you're you're decades apart, but we each have something to teach each other. Did you, so one day, think that you would be in a position to, to, kind of be teaching just by what you do? Hmm. Is that something that you could see yourself continuing in, and incorporating into your work as a as an advocate? You've mentioned you want to be a senior advocate. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I'll say. Maybe being a teacher down the road. Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, sharing, I think sharing the, the compassion that, that, that doesn't, that's not attached to age. Uh, a human being has compassion and, and delivers that, that knows no age. Yeah. I think that the compassion that Constance has for people, I had lost a little bit because I'm so, in, not lost, I just didn't feel like I had time to show it all of the time. Right. So I'm involved in doing this thing and this thing and doing this grant and writing this report and X, Y and Z. And then, you know, I'd forgotten how much the seniors really needed us in some ways. Never, never totally. But it was just like an intern's got this. I'm good. But then after the the isolation of the pandemic and then watching Constance, I really learned, oh, yes, in every little way I can show that I care also. And so I think that's. A lot of it. That's what I wanted to say that I'd forgotten. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I remember um, Denise um, went away when I first got to Adam neighborhood. She went to um, celebrate her birthday that week. And that Wednesday was the senior discovery group. And she said, I'm going to be gone for two weeks and I'm like two weeks <laughs> how am I supposed to do this she said you got this I watch you do it and you can do it so Wednesday morning nine o'clock I was there set up the room and I just saw myself going from one point to another and everything went smooth and I was like whoa I did this <laughs> And when she got back, people, um, co-workers told her that Constance actually did good. But I didn't believe in myself because she was there. So I was like, okay, Denise got this. But not having her there, I knew that I played that role that she was playing. And the seniors were all happy that stuff got done. I got compliment for June. I was like, Okay, <laughs> I did this. Yeah. But yeah, the senior discovery group at um, at the neighborhood center, I didn't even know such community center existed until I got placed there. Um, it's a wonderful place. Any time of the day, there is always someone to help you. There is always someone there with whatever problem you go with, then he's there to tell you, okay, this, you can be referred to this, this would do this. And the support, the togetherness, Denise is just so amazing. So Ida Neighborhood Center is a good place and I'm glad that Janet had placed me there the senior discovery group, I learned a lot from them. Sweet people to work with, and I still cherish them. That's incredible. That's wonderful. Yeah, it, it, which leads me to you, Joan. Uh, as I mentioned, you're uh, completing your 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 term. Not that there is an elected term, but your your time as the executive director of Allen Neighborhood Center, and I'm sure much reflection went into your decision for this timing. Um, and I'm curious what 
since you've made the announcement and and as you approach the departure, what your your what kinds of things you're reflecting on now? Well, you know what I feel like it's been the time has been so jam packed with preparation for leaving that I've not had a whole lot of time for reflection. Um, you know, I intend to uh, sit still in September <laughs> <laughs> and take stock of uh, of you know opportunities that I'm hoping will present themselves. Um, I'm not sure what the next stage, you know, in my life will bring. Um, I'm 73. I think I have, you know, some productive years left. Um, but I, you know, I, so I want to, you know, fill that time with, uh, with good work. I may work. Uh, I, I will likely uh, work for a living. I will uh, certainly be involved in uh, community activities. Um, I'm just not sure exactly what at this point. Yeah, I can imagine you want some time to, I mean... Think about it. Yeah. Clean my garage, clean my basement, <laughs> catch up on many household, you know, and yard tasks. And Hang out with friends and, <laughs> yes. and just, yeah, drink coffee. Um, I just want to, I want to direct listeners to, because we don't have time to do what Lawrence Cosentino did, which oh, was a great. wonderful four-page article. Well, actually, it's probably it's online now. Uh, an interview with you, Joan, um, earlier this summer or spring when you first announced uh, uh, that you would be departing from Allen Neighborhood Center, and it really um, shares just your wonderful history. I, as a student at MSU uh, in the late 70s, I was aware of you and your, your. Uh, I think that's, or maybe it was the early 80s when you were doing the self-defense workshops. Right, right, but right. You, you've, you've had your, your, you've been a part of community organizing in many ways right. uh, over the years. Um, and that's uh, just my observation, who you are. That's your heart. And, you know, in contributing to the community, I can't imagine. I mean, I hope you love retirement, but I can't imagine and hope that you don't completely leave us <laughs> for, for just, oh, you know, chilling out on a hammock. You know, rest assured, I will not. <laughs> I will not. In fact, I've only in the last couple of weeks begun to use the term retirement. I mean, the R word I've been avoiding. <laughs> the R word. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it, I mean, for so many folks, it, it really does uh, signal you know, an end of productive time, and I just can't imagine. So, yes, I'm I'm looking forward to figuring out what what's next. That's wonderful. I'll be excited to thank you to, for asking to follow that. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left, and I want to give everybody a chance to share whatever final thoughts you wish uh, on this conversation. And uh, uh, since we're just chatting with you, Joan, why don't you go ahead and and Share if there's any other comments you'd like to make about practicum or Allen neighborhood or any of these topics. Well, not much beyond what I've already said, just that I am so grateful that LCC offers this uh, and that other institutions do as well. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful partnership. You know, it's, it, I think it's a, it's a two-way gift um, and I'm, I'm really just looking forward to continued 
uh, work with LCC students and with Janet and, and the program uh, for many years uh, ahead. Janet, uh, what would you share? What would you like to share as we wrap it up? Okay. I have two things. First, I want to say to Joan, when you're looking at retirement, you can look at it a different way. And I learned this terminology from being in a webinar with um, our equivalent to Tri-County Office on Aging, but it was in Vancouver, Canada. Um, and so instead of retirement, you take the T out and you put the W in and it becomes rewirement. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm right there with you. Is yes. I don't look at retirement as a time to settle down. I look at retirement as kind of like a new beginning, right. you know, maybe at a slower pace, but a new beginning. Right. So that's Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> okay. And then for everyone else, I just want to say, you know what, thank you so much. I mean, if Allen Neighborhood, Denise and Constance um, hadn't chose to participate, that, that is the type of student, a type of agency and supervisor, um, you know, that we look for to give the students those rich experience. And we, we welcome many people. So, thank you. And I want to thank you, Melissa, for putting us in the spotlight. Oh, my, my great pleasure. Thank you, Janet. So Denise is the the supervisor. Well, as I said earlier, I love having interns. I love learning from interns and I love teaching interns. Uh, and the LCC students I've worked with have all been stellar. That's why you're all stars, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I've especially loved working with Constance, but I can speak for myself. I think I can speak for every one of my colleagues who have interns that we can't do our jobs without our interns or our practicum students. They're that vital to us. Um, when Constance was left on her own because I went up north to close up the cabin, you know, I needed that time away. And we all have that moment in our lives that we need to get out of town. Um, and our students are able to pick up the ball and run with it. So thank you. Thank you, Denise. How does that feel so one day to be a person who can pick up the ball and run with it? <laughs> it's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. And my practicum experience at, at a neighborhood center um, make me to see and aim for a better um, person, a better um human services um, provider in the community. And LCC is the place, if you want to go, to set that foundation to do um, your human services, to get your human services degree. LCC is the place. You have all the support you can get from the instructor, and they will make sure you are placed with the agency that will support you. Thank you, Sawunde. You clearly have accomplished wonderful things and made so much in the way of contributions to every individual that you've touched, and I'm sure that will continue for you and, and wish you all the best in that. I want to thank uh, everyone uh, for this really great conversation. Sawunde Constance Yeh, Joan Nelson, Denise Paquette, and on the phone... Janet Marion, really appreciate your time. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. 
To listen to this episode again and other episodes of Galaxy Forum and all the LCC Connect programming, visit lccconnect.org. Special thanks to Dedalian Lowry, LCC Connect broadcast manager and technical producer, and to Andy Callis for composing our theme music. I'm Melissa Kaplan, and this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that help to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. The Modern Warehousing Program through the Job Training Center at Lansing Community College is an industry-led program that prepares individuals for frontline material handling and supply chain logistics positions in medical centers, fulfillment centers, warehouses, and factories. Those who complete this program earn multiple employer-recognized certifications in six short weeks and get a chance to meet with local employers about their future. Visit lcc.edu slash JTC training. With everything you've done to lift up those around you during your military career, we're not going to let your money concerns get you down. We're the NFCC, and we've got your back on this one. As your financial advocate, we're dedicated to improving the financial health of all members of the military community. Whether your debt issues are related to student loans or housing or involve credit cards, our goal is to help you to defend your financial future. NFCC certified credit counselors have already made the difference for thousands of military members and their families. Let us make a difference for you and yours. Schedule a confidential financial review with an objective nonprofit NFCC financial counselor. Call us today at 877-404-6322. That's 877-404-6322. Or visit us at nfcc.org slash military. You owe it to yourself. Get relief now. Lansing Community College's downtown and west campus offer newly renovated conference and event spaces that can accommodate over 500 attendees. Professional event planners are available to guide you through your experience from setup to catering. LCC offers convenient locations, state-of-the-art technology and hybrid meeting capabilities, in-house catering, free event parking, and on-site customer service. For more information about LCC's conference and event spaces or to request a rental quote, please contact LCC's conference services at lcc-events at lcc.edu. Hi, I'm Lisa Alexander, and I host a show called Who's That Star on LCC Connect. This show is all about an inside look at the LCC community where you get a chance to meet our faculty and staff plus learn about their passion projects at work and at home. You can catch Who's That Star here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect Voices Vibes Vision From Lansing Community College this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. 
Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement Lansing Community College occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. In particular, the city of Lansing and LCC reside on lands ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. In this episode of Land Stories, we're going to look at the history behind that land acknowledgement statement. And what I mean by that is not just the statement itself. We're not going to uh, only look at the reason why that statement was put recently into Lansing Community College Communications. We're going to look at the reason why that statement came into existence to begin with. And that's a broad story that's going to take us back hundreds of years to a time before Lansing Community College existed, to a time before the city of Lansing existed, to a time before the folks who would come to name this area... Ingham County, Lansing, uh, ever lived here. And what, of course, we're talking about is the history of the indigenous peoples of this area who are mentioned in that land acknowledgement statement. Uh, the Three Fires Confederacy, the Ojibwa, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. And this is a story that is told in many ways, although uh, ways that aren't necessarily inclusive of everything that happened. And I think that to start out, my thoughts on this, uh, the story that I'm going to tell you, uh, I will ask your permission to allow me to dip back into my mind uh, quite a few years. Let's go back to the early 1980s, and I am in elementary school in Kalamazoo County, Michigan. While I remember two things clearly about the lessons that we were taught, of the folks who came here and the folks that lived here, here being in Michigan, before the folks that came here, those would be the uh, white Euro-Americans. And those two things were as follows. Number one, there were people that lived here before Europeans got here, and they were called Indians. The second thing I learned about those folks is that they were really nice. They gave the Europeans lots of stuff, especially food like turkey and corn, and that is why we get a Thursday in November off of school so we can eat turkey and corn with our mom and dad and grandpa and grandpa. And that is called Thanksgiving. And those really nice Indians gave those really nice pilgrims who wore the funny hats the corn and the turkey. And that is how America came to be founded. Now, you may be thinking, well, that sounds kind of like a story I've been told. And you may also be thinking, boy, that sounds pretty simple. There had to have been more to the story than that. And, well, there was. And this episode isn't about the first Thanksgiving, so I care not to dwell too much further upon that, rather than mentioning it in the context of this is really the extent of what I was taught when I was a little kid about quote-unquote Indians, about the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And I suspect that I'm not the only child growing up in Michigan, in the United States of America, back in the 
early 80s, sitting in an elementary classroom learning about this for the first time. I suspect this is something that happened elsewhere around the United States and has some form of it now. When I got a bit older is when I learned that there was a much more complex story of who lived in Michigan before Europeans arrived and what that arrival of Europeans entailed. And to bookend my learning of this would not really be possible because I'm still learning much about this. And I hope you are too. One should never close his learning off in life. After all, to do so, I think, would be to limit the great opportunity that we have at understanding this fascinating place we inhabit called planet Earth and our fellow humanity writ large. So let's take that story back then to, well, we'll take it back thousands of years and then skip over thousands of years and end up around about the year 1800. What we know about this area, we, meaning collective humanity, those that have chosen to study the subject, those that have stumbled upon evidence, sometimes quite accidentally, is limited when one considers that there are thousands of years of humanity having lived in Michigan, the southern part of Michigan specifically, as the focus today of this episode, uh, that we just don't know about. About, uh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, somewhere around there, I was on a um, was on an 80-foot boat. One might call it a ship. About, I don't know, 15 miles or so offshore on uh, Lake Huron, northern part of Lake Huron. And I was on the ship as part of a uh, National Endowment for the Humanities workshop that I took part in over the course of a couple weeks in the summer. And the purpose of that workshop was to examine the history of shipwrecks along the Great Lakes. And maybe in a future episode, I will uh, share with you some of those stories because they're quite fascinating. But for now, I'm going to share with you a part of this um, workshop I took part in that didn't have anything to do with shipwrecks. We were on a uh, ship that had a uh, scientist on board who had a remote-operated vehicle, an ROV, which is basically a little robot that's about the size of a uh, one of those little mini beer kegs you can buy in the store that holds about five liters of beer. And it uh, has a camera on it. It's tethered to a uh, control device that the uh, operator operates, in our case, on the deck of the ship. And then it has a nice uh, television screen that it hooks up to. We had about a, I don't know, 30-inch monitor on board the ship that uh, the images that the remote-operated vehicle beamed through its tether in the 250 feet of water or so we were in up to that lovely television screen sitting on the deck of the ship. And we were looking at a shipwreck that was sitting in uh, that part of Lake Huron, the bottom of it, and... I happened to discuss with the uh, gentleman who brought the ROV with him what his research interests were. I figured it wasn't only shipwrecks because you can look at a lot of stuff with ROVs. And as it turns out, it wasn't. He shared with me a story of a research project that he became aware of somewhat recently, recently at this time, would have been the late first decade of the uh, 2000s that involved discovering, uh, using ROVs and uh, diving, actually, ancient caribou hunting grounds on the bottom of Lake Huron. 
And I said, wow, that's really amazing. Tell me a little bit more about it. And so he started to tell me all about this research that was underway, and I think it was being conducted by the University of Michigan at the time, that uh, discovered what scientists believed to be, and later on very much uh, affirmed were, caribou hunting grounds. Basically giant gauntlets that were set up to force caribou into a, uh, basically a tunnel, a gauntlet that had been set up to direct them into one point where the ancient hunters would force them through via spooking them into a stampede, and then the hunters at the other end of the gauntlet would uh, kill their prey and have a feast on caribou. And I was fascinated to learn about the discovery of this because it suggested that there were people hunting caribou in what is now called the Great Lakes region of North America thousands of years ago. In order for these caribou hunting grounds to have been uh, built by humans, they would have to have been there around eight or 9,000 years ago because that was the last time that Lake Huron had a water level that was low enough that those hunting grounds would have been on land. Obviously, people did not dive uh, hundreds of feet below the water thousands of years ago and hunt caribou down there. That would have been preposterous. So, we know through the discovery of these ancient caribou hunting grounds, through the discovery of some other archaeological sites that are not under Lake Huron, such as the uh, Ganey site near Flint, that there have been people living in Michigan for thousands of years, long before Europeans ever set eyes on this land. Now, it's good to know that, but what do we know about those people who lived here at the time? Well, that, unfortunately, uh, is answered by saying not as much as we would like to. The biggest challenge that's always existed in uh, studying the pre-European peoples who lived in Michigan, is that at the time, they did not have the type of written language that uh, Europeans possessed, and the absence of that type of written language has therefore made uh, made it hard to study them, because civilizations, societies that leave writing behind are usually a lot easier to study uh, their thoughts, their ideas, their day-to-day practices, because, well, they wrote something down about them, and if we can read their writing... Uh, writing is an incredible tool to get into the mind of the individual who created uh, said documentation. So, some of the earliest written uh, sources we have of the indigenous peoples of Michigan, they weren't written by those folks, they were written by French Jesuits. These were uh, Christian missionaries that came to Michigan uh, starting in the 1600s and especially in the 1700s, and their their writing was descriptive, but extremely biased, uh, as we would say nowadays. The, the Jesuits were on a mission to convert the native peoples to Christianity, and they believed that the evidence that they could find within those indigenous peoples' cultures, that they were either heathens in believing in false gods or idols, or they were in some way savage and barbaric, would be evidence that would further justify the sort of by any means necessary conversion of those folks to Christianity that uh, certain Jesuits were motivated towards. So 
those sources aren't always as helpful as one might think. But I don't want to jump completely over that several thousands of years of history between when those ancient caribou hunting grounds were put down and when the Jesuits arrived here in Michigan, because there's obviously a lot of time to pass in between. And what we know about that time comes from the indigenous sources themselves. And the Anishinaabeg are the three fires people that are mentioned in the Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement Statement that I begin this episode by reading out. And the Anishinaabeg lived in Michigan at the time of the arrival of Europeans and likely lived here for centuries, if not longer, prior to the arrival of Europeans. The evidence of this comes in the form of the traditional history of the Anishinaabeg, and it also comes in the anthropological and historical studies that have been conducted of the ancient Americas over the last centuries since Europeans and their descendants have lived here. And the ancient history of the Anishinaabeg is one of migration. Migration to the Great Lakes region from the lands along the eastern seaboard of North America. And the Mi'kmaq indigenous peoples who live in the northeastern part of the United States and into the maritime provinces of Canada, they are ethnically related to the Anishinaabeg. And this is um, great evidence. It's very strong evidence that shows us that indeed there is a strong connection between the Great Lakes indigenous Americans and those of the northeast. When Europeans arrived into the Americas, the continent was populated quite extensively, but not evenly distributed in terms of where the people lived. So the west coast of North America was very densely populated uh, relative to the, say, desert southwest, where because of the lack of resources, population densities were not nearly as heavy. And then in the eastern part of North America, what anthropologists years ago dubbed the quote-unquote eastern woodlands, population densities varied primarily uh, based on the availability of resources as well. And this part of North America, the Great Lakes region, had a population density that was fairly sparse, but also varied quite greatly in subsistence patterns. So we think of the indigenous peoples of this part of the Americas as being quote-unquote hunter-gatherers. As the title suggests, this is an old uh, but still widely used anthropological term that suggests that people made their living off hunting and gathering. And the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is uh, suggested by anthropologists and historians to be one that involved fairly sparsely populated regions because hunter-gatherers, it was believed, needed great stretches of land to be able to support themselves off wild game and wild plants. Now, even that terminology, game, game is a, uh, is a very Eurocentric term, actually, because it suggests that to take an animal in the wild... Uh, to eat 
as opposed to slaughtering livestock, is some type of a sport activity. And that would be because in medieval Europe, which is where this terminology um, gains popularity, those who hunted wild game were indeed usually uh, wealthy noblemen engaged in some sort of recreation. So that terminology aside, the uh, picture of life here in this part of the Americas at the the point that Europeans arrived, let's say roughly the year 1600, 1650, that time period, is one where society looked very, very different than the society that Europeans uh, came from. European society was rigidly hierarchical in a way that was easily recognized. And that is a really very important point of emphasis in a way that was easily recognized. Indigenous societies were very poorly understood by Europeans when they arrived here. And even the Jesuit priests who actually made a more concerted effort to understand the indigenous societies effort that they made because they believed they had to get to know the people before they could convert them to Christianity, even they, in the end, exhibited a very poor understanding of what was actually going on. And the reason for this is because indigenous societies were not uh, arranged in a way that Europeans could easily recognize as something that was comparable to how they lived. So, The French were the Europeans who arrived here in uh, what we now call Michigan first. And French society in the 1600s was rigidly hierarchical. It was very easily recognized. You had the monarchy and the noble families who owned all the land that existed at the top of the hierarchy. And then you had the church, the Catholic church, which essentially functioned as a nobility uh, in and of itself, and a very wealthy one at that, it owned lots of land in France, and bishops had a great degree of political and economic power in France. So they were very easily recognizable as a uh, nobility within the, themselves. And then you had the rest of society who worked the land that the nobility owned, and they were clearly at a lower point in the social hierarchy, and everybody in France recognized this, whether or not they agreed with it or not, they recognized it. And eventually, France undergoes a great revolution at the end of the 1700s that upends the social order, and that social order that existed prior that revolution, the one I am describing, becomes known as the Ancien Regime, the old ruling order of France. Now, the Ancien Regime produced a culture, therefore, that when finding itself on the shores of the Americas did not recognize or relate to the social orders that were here. And land, land usage, land ownership, subsistence, ways of living, turn out to be probably one of the greatest aspects of indigenous life that Europeans found very difficult to understand. Certainly the case with the French here in Michigan. On top of that, gender roles in uh, French society in the 1600s were also very rigid in how people understood them. Rigid in the sense that one 
we're talking about gender roles, we're talking about men and women, and what men and women do are expected to do and are believed to do by their very nature in society. And gender roles are oftentimes tied closely into what people think of children, too, and how children are raised. And this would be a third, sort of the major differences uh, between the societies that the French discovered when they came into Michigan uh, compared to what they were used to back in Europe. Uh, European children in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, and we'll say the 1600s falls into that early modern period, lived a life that I think most people nowadays would find, uh, well, let's just say unrecognizable as to how children were viewed, how they were treated, and therefore how they were raised. Children in 1600s France were very much viewed as mini-adults. Uh, mini-adults that had to do what the big adults told them, more or less without question. And the children were valued primarily as uh, agricultural laborers. And that's not to say that parents back then didn't love their children. They almost most certainly did. And we know that from some of the very uh, touching and, and emotional writings that uh, people left behind of their children. And including those that exhibited a great despair over the well, the society that the children were born into. People felt like they really had no choice but to raise the children to be sort of mini-adults, and as soon as they were old enough to walk and work out in the fields for long enough, well, they did. And that was really the life that children had. It wasn't, it wasn't a world that was very different from adults, and, and children and adults worked side by side one another throughout their lives. Now, when Europeans arrived in the Americas, and when they arrived in Michigan, children in some ways did have one common behavioral characteristic the Europeans could recognize. It was actually that. It was the fact that they worked side-by-side -side adults. And Europeans could recognize as well that the Anishinaabe raised their children, and whether the French realized it or not that they were doing it is, you know, perhaps not necessarily clear either, but they were raised with an expectation of gender roles being fulfilled. So boys were raised by men, girls were raised by women, not exclusively, but in order for boys to be able to grow up and do what men were expected to do in indigenous societies, they uh, were taught by men to do what men did. And men were recognized by Europeans who wrote about them anyways as primarily hunting in terms of their uh, role in society. Women were, where agriculture was practiced actually, were very much the farmers, and they uh, raised girls accordingly to uh, work the fields. Now, agriculture wasn't as practiced nearly as prominently here in Michigan uh, as it was in other parts of the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans, but the Potawatomi, those folks who uh, lived in what is now Lansing, Ingham County, uh, prior to the arrival of Europeans, were uh, certainly more extensive agriculturalists than the Odawa and the Ojibwa who lived uh, further north. And the reason for that is the same reason why Michigan in the year 2022 has a lot more farms south of the big glacial moraine that stripes right over the middle part of the lower peninsula. Uh, extending from the Saginaw Basin all the way over to the uh, west side of the peninsula. It's because of soil. 
when the glacier retreated that created that great moraine, uh, it left good soil south of the retreat and not as good as soil north of the, the retreating line. So where that moraine ended up forming. So the practice of agriculture, again, limited compared to other parts of the Americas, but in the southern part of Michigan, uh, the Potawatomi did farm. They didn't farm as extensively as other agricultural communities, societies did, but it did encompass a fairly significant part of their diet. And that's actually a very important thing to keep in mind because when the very first substantial wave of uh, white settlers crossed the Appalachian Mountains and set their eyes on the lands in this part of what would become the United States, farming is what was on their mind. And one of the entire justifications for taking indigenous lands was always this idea that indigenous peoples didn't use their land. Yes, that is what you just heard. Europeans and later uh, white Americans oftentimes justified the seizure of Indian lands, of indigenous peoples' lands, by claiming that the indigenous peoples didn't use their land. They lived on it, but they didn't use it. And land usage in the eyes of Europeans, be that the French, but especially the British, when we're talking in the colonial context of the middle part of the Americas, and then later on the Americans, after the United States gains its independence from Britain, that mindset that existed amongst those people at the time with regards to land was land was only used if it was farmed or if it was built upon. So a stretch of land that had farms on it, a stretch of land that had a city built on it, uh, a stretch of land that had a port built, if it was coastal land, for example, that was land that was being used. And the usage of land in the European and later the American uh, mindset of property ownership was absolutely vital in determining whether or not one could claim ownership. Meaning, if in the eyes of, of European property law and later American property law, and this is actually rooted back in uh, ancient Rome, uh, if land wasn't used, even the person who occupied that land didn't have uh, a claimant of ownership. Land had to be used in order for it to be properly claimed to be owned. And this is going to be a major justification that the United States, again, is going to use when it comes to uh, appropriation of indigenous lands. The fact that the Potawatomi did engage in some farming turned out to be a problem in the in this mindset, this legal justification, as well as a cultural mindset uh, that the American government uses uh, in the 1800s to get a hold of indigenous lands. And that's where we're going to leave off uh, this episode, part one of a three-part series on indigenous lands in Michigan. And where, when, why, and how uh, the land of uh, Michigan, and in particular the southern part of Michigan where Lansing Community College now sits, came to be appropriated and taken from the indigenous peoples and thereby fallen in the hands of uh, others. Next episode, we will, therefore, continue looking at indigenous mid-Michigan. 
You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.